Mrs. Lael was like the first teacher I had tell me she had, she had written jokes for um, Phyllis Diller. And I never even thought that that was a thing that you could do. <laughs> you could be a teacher in Sonoma and then write dirty jokes for a thing. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 633, Nerdy Brian Posehn. In November, Reed Martin interviewed comedian Brian Posehn as a fundraiser for the Sonoma Valley Education Foundation. Reed and Brian are both alums of Sonoma Valley High School, and while Reed literally wrote the book on comedy, it was actually a script called The Complete History of Comedy Abridged, and I helped, but still. Um, Brian is a stand-up actor and writer who is, has appeared on everything from Mr. Show and Seinfeld to The Big Bang Theory and New Girl. Brian's also written over 40 issues of the comic book Deadpool and has been a voice actor on American Dad, Bob's Burgers, and the animated film version of Captain Underpants. Brian is also the author of Forever Nerdy, Living My Dorky Dreams and Staying Metal, and Reed began their conversation talking about Brian's time in high school. Now, you write a lot about getting bullied in school. Now, that can go either way. You know, somebody can turn out great, somebody can turn into a, a school shooter. How did, I mean, that wasn't That's the thing. second time you've gone dark with that. I know. <laughs> There's other possibilities. Oh, I thought that was that that just my party and killing people. <laughs> <laughs> well, but why did, it, why did you turn out okay? Why do you think? Because uh, I had support from other people, and I had, I had, well, I had St. Andrews, and, I, and you know, I had a church where I felt at home, and I had, you know, I fought with my mom. My mom was a single lady and, and raised me, and then, you know, suddenly while I was in junior high and high school, she started dating again, and I was like, I thought I was your man. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I, I hated every guy that dated my mom, but, but at the end of the day, she... As soon as I got into comedy, she was like, oh, this is the thing. This is like, because like I said, barely making it out, it was hard for her. But when I, once I did figure it out, she was nothing but supportive. But, and then I had grandparents and, you know, and there were the friends. There were, there's friends here that I had a little neighborhood in Glen Allen where friends are like, dude, you're not that guy. You know, you're not this pariah that you are at school. <laughs> we like you. <laughs> you know, so that stuff made you not buy a trench coat and <laughs> go dark. Speak for yourself. Uh, so you, you read some very personal stuff in the book, and you say at the end and that writing the book was the hardest thing you've ever done. Was it because of writing the personal stuff, or was it hard to reveal all that? It was, well, yeah. And because I'm so used to, like, when I do talk about my life in stand-up, I'm coming at it from a strictly comedy place, so I never go too dark or too morose. But in the book, I did, and then, but it, like, but I also made a point of, if I would get dark in a chapter, I would end on a bright note, and, you know, but, and so that was a challenge. Um, and just being honest, and the sheer amount of work, like, 
you know, like I said, they did 50 words for the blurb. This is 83,000 words, so it's, once you're told that and it's on the contract and it says in big letters, hey, you something thousand, and you just say, I've written 200, how am I gonna do that? <laughs> so that was a lot of work, and my son is a clever, and he's nine, like, and when I finished writing it, he's like, is it called Forever Nerdy because it took forever? And I was like, oh, it's gonna be like me. <laughs> High school's gonna be a nightmare for me as a parent. About, if I remember, your great grandfather did something very notable so as not to ruin your mother's. Oh, wedding. dude, you love going dark. <laughs> yeah, it's in here. Uh, it'd probably be more fun to read because the way I wrote it. I was skipping around this in, the, in the, what I was going to read. I wasn't going to read what you're having me read right now. Yeah, there's a mark right next to it. That's where it ended. Oh, <laughs> here we go. Great grandpa Wes, I never met. He shot himself three days before my mom's wedding because he was dying of cancer and didn't want to ruin his granddaughter's wedding by being a cancer bomber. Yeah, you guys know how people with cancer always ruin weddings, right? Instead of ruining my mom's wedding, he shot himself, which also ruined her wedding. <laughs> Suicide doesn't run in my family, but bad decisions do, you'll see. <laughs> and that's the part he wants me to read. <laughs> And speaking yes. of, you know, bad decisions, in 87, you performed stand-up for the first time. That was a great decision. I know, I'm kidding you. <laughs> and how did it go the first time? The first time, uh, I crushed every single joke, worked, and then the second week, because I had written those jokes, it had taken six months to cobble, or a couple months to cobble together, these, you know, eight minutes or whatever it was, and then I crushed, and then the second time was a week later, I went up a week later with all brand new material. I didn't do any of the things that had worked. And then it all went terribly. Like, no one laughed at anything. I'm sweating, but I'm like, I still love this. Like, even when I was eating it, I was just looking at these people, like, they look like dead fish. Looking at me, like, what are you gonna do? Like, how are you gonna save this? But I just love that feeling. And it was like, you know, a drug. Now, this afternoon at the high school, I asked, how long is a set for you, and how long does it take to put that together, and what's the process? Well, now, you know, I mostly do, like, 50 minutes to an hour, and it takes about two and a half years to cobble that, that much material from, you know, when you're starting a, a brand new set. Sometimes it comes faster, sometimes, but for me, that's been, like, I have friends that can turn it around in a year, but then they're also not writing books and raising nine-year-olds. <laughs> I have another whole life, but so I, but I, but I do. For me, I love the the doing new material is like one of the best feelings because like when you tell jokes a million times, and you start to feel it, but you always have to sell it like you've never said it before. And then when you actually have a joke you've never said before, those are the ones where you kind of light up as a performer, where you're like, ah, how's this gonna go? You know, those are more fun, those moments. So you, write, so, so you write something, you think it's a good idea, but it's not working. So what's the process? You're pretty convinced there's something there, but it's not there yet. It's not polished. What do you, how do you work on that? 
in a couple of ways. I mean, we always call it taking it back to the lab. That's what me and my other fellow comics have said, where you just you tweak it at home, or you, you sing it different ways on stage. You can come to, you can fix it in different ways. It just depends on what the what the thing was originally, you know, whatever the problem was. Yeah. So in 1992, you met Patton Oswalt and you performed every night for two years at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco with a bunch of other young stand-ups as well as working yeah. elsewhere around the Multiple city. clubs. So we would be in, in Oakland or Berkeley or wherever, and then come back or doing sets in San Francisco at the time. There was the great improv, which was on uh, Mason and Geary, and then there was uh, the punchline, which is still there, and then Cobbs, which is in the cannery. Uh, and was, so these were places, at, growing up in Sonoma, I knew those places. Like I would read the Chronicle, and like the Holy City Zoo is like this legendary place where Robin Williams is from. And I went moving around the corner from there, and then that became like our little home club where wherever we did that night, we would wind up back at this club and then, you know, celebrate and then try new jokes out and make each other laugh. And it was a, a super fun, uh, I don't give those guys all credit for any success I had, but growing up, coming up with that group had a lot to do with uh, where I am, you know. And were all those people making a living at it at that point? No, we were all starting. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, yeah, no, uh, I, I had, uh, my grandpa had passed in Sacramento, so I had dead grandpa money, so I was buying food for people. <laughs> no, I was like the friend that was helping everybody out. Like Pat, and sometimes didn't have rent, but I, I was covering us and, you know, just um, paying, you know, financing my passion, really. Like, I, I, I knew my grandfather had worked really, really hard for this money I was burning through, but I also knew that I was doing something good with it, that I was like, because like, in comedy, we're getting good at anything. I feel like you, you know, they call it woodshedding or whatever with guitar, you know, where the only way you can become Eddie Van Halen is you sit in your room for hours and hours and days and years just learning that thing, and that's what you have to do with anything. And with comedy, that's what we were all doing. We were just obsessing and just, uh, you know, again, with the nerdiness. I got nerdy about comedy because I just loved it, wanted good, loved watching it, loved performing it, and just getting worse. Hi, I'm Brett Paisel. I'm an actress from Mr. Show with Bob and David on HBO, and I also wrote Mommies Who Drink, Sex, Drugs, and Other Distant Memories of an Ordinary Mom, and you are listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. Have a great time. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Next week, our 2019 tour continues at Wingate University in North Carolina, then continues on with performances in Morristown, New Jersey, Lancaster, California, Idaho Falls, Idaho, St. John's University, and Collegeville, 
Minnesota, Reston, Virginia, Houghton, Michigan, Appleton, Wisconsin, Lubbock, Texas, Amherst, Massachusetts, Flint, Michigan, River Forest, and Effingham, Illinois, Meridian, Kansas, a week at the Virginia Arts Festival in Norfolk, Virginia, and we'll be giving two performances of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play, Abridged, in Los Angeles at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, California. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. Now back to Reed Barton's conversation with comedian, actor, and writer Brian Posehn, recorded live as a benefit for the Sonoma Valley Education Foundation. Now, you used to have a pretty strong opinion about comedians doing material about their kids. Uh, has, that, has that changed? Well, yeah, when you have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and you're suddenly the guy you told everybody you were never going to be. But I always feel like, um, you know, when we, they called, some of my friends, we were called like alternative comics, Margaret Cho especially, Janine Garofalo, David Cross, Pat Oswald, no, although now he's had such mainstream success, but um, we were kind of the black sheep in the 90s and we were kind of an answer to um, the mainstream 80s comedy. We were the, you know, we were the kids that weren't wearing suits and funny ties on stage. We were wearing, you know, heavy metal t-shirts and skateboard shoes and just getting on stage and talking about things that happened to you that day. I was always against whatever those mainstream guys were doing. And when I was in my 20s, I'm like, I'm never going to be that, you know. So I used to say in my act, if I ever have a kid and you see me on stage and I'm talking and I've lost my edge and I'm all precious and I if I ever say that, I want you to punch my baby. <laughs> and then I would have nerds at the mall like, hey, can I punch your baby? No, it was a joke. <laughs> and now my baby's nine years old and he knows karate. And, uh, he's almost my size, so try punching him, see what happens to him. <laughs> he put me in the hospital and I'm his favorite person, so. Uh, now, you have written, co-written, 45 Deadpool comics? Yeah. How did that come about? Uh, does everybody know what Deadpool is? I mean, it's, a, it's a Marvel character. Uh, he, he's not one of, he's not like Spider-Man, he's not from the 60s, but he was uh, created in the 90s. And he was a character I always liked. And uh, I wrote a, I wrote a, um, print paperback with a buddy of mine, which is uh, basically like a fancy word for uh, a comic book, uh, or, you know, um, we had written these five issues, and it was about Santa Claus after the apocalypse fighting zombies. You know, classic Christmas tale. <laughs> and through that, we met these guys at Marvel that were like, what would you do? What, you know, you seem like a good fit for Deadpool. What would you do? And, and uh, we still had to pitch, even though I was like, coming into comic books, I'm sort of a celebrity because I had this other thing. Uh, I still had to, you know, show that I knew my way around a story and that I could, uh, you know, write 45 issues is what we wound up doing. So uh, that first, I pitched the whole year, like what, which is essentially 18 issues. So I said what I would do in those 18 issues and kind of gave an arc and introduced all these other characters and kind of set up our new world, even though the character had this established world. When we came in, we wanted to throw everything away 
and start fresh. And Marvel Comics was super cool. The one thing they had a note was, I killed the Kardashians in an episode. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, Deadpool did. But, but they were like, you can't do that. And I was like, can I change their name? And they're like, well, let's talk to legal. Yeah, you can change their name. <laughs> so now it's the Kardashians. But it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty clear who we're going after. <laughs> Even they would understand. Hey, he's making fun of us. Hey. So you met, I mean, we lost Stan Lee this week. You Stan have met Stan Lee. What was he like? Uh, one of my greatest lunches of my life was uh, shooting a, a Fantastic Four 2 in Vancouver. And uh, so they break the actors. And he had, he had shot his cameo that morning. And uh, I come walking into the, the tent where catering is for food for our lunch. And he's the only guy sitting in there. And I'm like, oh my god, what do I do? Do I just sit the farthest away from him? Which was my instinct. But instead, I had some unknown confidence that day, and I just went straight to him, and I said, sir, can I sit here? And he's like, yes, well, yeah, you know, super cordial, and such a character, and so sweet. And I sat there quietly, eating my food, and just in my head, like, daredevil. You know, like every character, I was thinking, Fantastic Four, the whole, you know, all these characters are going through my head, Spider-Man, oh my God, the villains, you know. And then finally I just said, look, I gotta tell you, I'm a massive fan. And he was like, I had a feeling. This <laughs> <laughs> is pretty much how he sounded. You know? And then I just hit him up, and then he just told me stories about everything, and we just sat there, and it was amazing. And then we got, you know, people, the other cast members were like, do you have a good lunch? I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> I bumped Stan Lee and it turned out. He didn't tell me, get away, kid, you weirdo. He told me stories. Now, on the front of the book, there's you in a Star Wars shirt holding a picture of you in yes. the very same Star Wars Not shirt. the exact same. No. <laughs> no. So you, you I'm not rocking a medium anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So you, how would you describe your connection to Star Wars? A, a fanatic, a nerd? You've had a, you loved it. You had a falling out. Uh, yeah, there's a, an entire chapter devoted to Star Wars. Uh, I saw it at uh, what was that theater called? The Park Parkside in Santa Rosa. But anyway, we saw it there. But then, and I talk about this in the book, but Sebastiani Theater had it for like a year. Like when we were kids. Sebastian had Jaws, I think, I think for 12 months. <laughs> and so I saw it a million times. And then, and then um, Star Wars replaced Jaws. Like, Jaws is gone, and here's this new thing, this new sci-fi thing that the kids like. And uh, I loved it. I was obsessed and went and saw it. My mom would just drop me off. Uh, that became her M.O. Like, even, she didn't even know. Like, there would be our things. Jim Hinchman was here. We got dropped off to see Clint Eastwood's classic, The Gauntlet. Uh, yeah, a hard R, and we were like 12. <laughs> this is the 70s, where you could just walk up to Sebastiani Theater and go, I'm not going in with them, but they're okay. <laughs> we weren't okay. We were 12 years old. We shouldn't have been seeing that alone. But we loved it. We loved my mom's irresponsible. <laughs> 
paid off. And so you've met some of those people from this movie you obsessed over. Yeah. Luckily, Harrison Ford hasn't had to deal with me yet, because I might, I might cry on that man's shirt. <laughs> I will definitely put him in a bear hug and maybe lift him up a little. <laughs> I like that feeling. I feel it's the weightlessness that I will give him, but, but I think he'd also call security on me. Uh, but I've gotten to meet Carrie Fisher and, um, and uh, um, Mark Hamill. I've met Mark Hamill a couple of times, and uh, all, he's a fellow nerd, and like, the craziest thing was the first time I met him, I had done this really obscure, uh, well, it's, now people know it, but um, this, this uh, HBO uh, sketch show called Mr. Show, and the first time I met Mark Hamill, he's like, you're from Mr. Show, and I was like, Bob, I had to. <laughs> You're Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I had you on my shirt. <laughs> you know, uh, and that was strange. And then Carrie Fisher, you guys all know Carrie's sense of humor. Uh, and she's legendary for not only being a great actress, but also a great writer and just sharp and so smart. It's one of the smartest people I've ever been in a room with. And uh, we did a gala, which is, uh, you know, the shows in, uh, in uh, um, Montreal is a big comedy festival in Montreal. This one a couple years ago, um, the Montreal uh, festival had been booked, and I used to do it almost every year. Um, and it's just a fun place, uh, you know. It's like comedy summer camp, and we all go to Montreal and just eat poutine and tell jokes. And, and uh, so I wasn't going this year. But then my agent goes, "Hey man, uh, last minute thing for the festival." They want somebody to do Star Wars material during the gala. And I'm like, yeah, I know a dude. Uh, I have like 20 minutes of it. So I went and did all my Star Wars jokes before Carrie Fisher, or during when she introduced me, and then I did my jokes. And so I get to meet her after. I meet her dog, Gary. He's a cool little dude. And uh, she's, she's like, uh, I, 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 I gotta take a picture. Can I insert the book? Can I take a picture? And she goes, Well, I'm so small. And, and you know, next to you, I'll look, I'll look tiny next to you. And I go, Well, my wife is five foot two, same height as her. And she goes, Oh, you like spinners. <laughs> <laughs> and I turn so red. <laughs> Princess Leia, wow. <laughs> we don't talk like that. <laughs> my goodness. And I was just amazed. I mean, that's part of why I like her. She was that, and that was the year before she passed. And she was just sassy all the time. She was that person, just so cool. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. For more information about Brian Posehn and his hilarious projects, go to his website, brianposehn.com. And if you want to find out about how you can contribute to the Sonoma Valley Education Foundation, go to svgreatschools.org. Then send us your stand-ins for Darth Vader via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to forever clowny Matthew Croak. Web services by Ginger Power Limited. Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Trey Johnson. No reason, it's just random. 
Special thanks to actor and writer Brett Paisel, another alum of Mr. Show and author of Mommies Who Drink, Sex, Drugs, and Other Distant Memories of an Ordinary Mom. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Tishner, 633 1899ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.